Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm Rose, and as a botanist, I've spent much more time looking at the ground than up at the stars. So today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Ben McAllister. Ben is an enthusiastic physicist and teller of science stories. We had a chat about space, which I think was pretty out of this world. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off with, this is the first question we always ask. Okay. What do you actually do? Oh, wow. What a loaded question. Um, (laughs) So I am a scientist. Specifically, I'm a physicist. Slightly more specifically, I'm a particle physicist, I guess. How appropriate. Um, Yeah, I know, right? It's always, yeah. Anytime I hear from you guys, I'm like, nice. Good name for for an outlet. Um, Yes, I'm I'm specifically, I work in dark matter. So uh, for those of you who don't know, I guess maybe we'll get into it a bit more. Dark matter is this mysterious, invisible stuff that makes up about five-sixths of all the matter in the universe. Uh, It's... It's huge. It's everywhere. It's passing right through your body right now as you're listening to this. It's passing right through the studio, but we don't really know what it is. So uh, we build detectors in the lab on Earth to try and observe it as it passes through so that we can get a better understanding of what it is. And that's what I do. How does it feel to work with something that we don't completely understand yet? Yeah, I mean, good and also um, kind of terrifying, right? Because it's like you can spend a lot of time working on something that just turns out to not be true. And then you've spent a lot of time working on like, you know, all the, all the science you've done is fine and it's correct for like the set of assumptions you started with. But then like those assumptions turn out to be wrong because we don't know really what the dark matter is. And then like, yeah, is that a waste of time? Like if you ask me, it's, it's not because, you know, Arguably, the only way we discover anything is by kind of stumbling around in the dark for a while. And like, if you stumble around in this direction and you don't find something, then people know in future that they don't have to go over there as long as you do it properly. So from that perspective, it it feels good to be doing it. I mean, it's like we talk about it as like ruling things out, you know, like we're all pursuing different different avenues towards finding out what the dark matter is and like if we're going down this direction and we don't find anything then at least like we can kind of rule that direction out and and go somewhere else but surely with something like dark matter we understand it like it could be it could be so many possibilities so the list of things to test out is almost infinite well yes but that being said there are some things that are better than others to go looking for which come from like where they're we call it like motivation as far as the theory is concerned so um i guess just jumping right into it dark matter stuff we know about it right like we start with what we know and then we build kind of theories that could explain the things that we know and we look for the theories that are like most well supported by other aspects of physics and then we kind of pursue those so it's not like we're just being like oh it's dark matter so what if it was this random thing and then like looking for it it, it comes from like taking what you know and then kind of making the fewest kind of logical steps that you have to in order to to, to describe it so things we know about dark matter it has mass which means it is heavy in the sense that it interacts with gravity in fact that's the only way we really know about it at all is from looking at the way it interacts with other stuff that we can see in space so we can see like things moving around in space in ways that we wouldn't be able to explain if the only stuff providing gravity was the stuff we can see so like stars moving around or even like galaxies within clusters whatever we we see evidence for dark matter based on its gravitational pull so we're pretty sure well we, we know it has mass or at least has gravity Um, we also know it doesn't interact with light at all because we can't see it it's dark matter it doesn't reflect light it doesn't give off light Uh, so you kind of can take those two ingredients and you can throw them into like 
a pot and then you can kind of go, okay, like what areas of physics propose the existence of particles that might have those properties? Just to jump in on a very appropriate definition today, a particle is a very, very small piece of matter. So when we're talking about it, we're basically just talking about tiny, tiny, tiny little things. And based on like which sort of proposed hypothetical particles are the most theoretically well-motivated, you can kind of pursue those avenues. Wow. So it really... Like everything you just said comes down to you having quite a deep understanding of physics. So I want to go yeah, way back. Sure. When you were a kid, uh-huh. were you also a science nerd? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say probably, like broadly speaking. I mean, I spent a lot of time wanting to be an actor or a writer or a journalist or something. So I've definitely kind of got a bit of an interest in that. But like, yeah, I mean, I was always into maths and science in school. I would love to say I'm one of those people who like was like, oh, from, you know, whatever, I knew I was going to be a physicist. But that's that's not really true. Like when I was at uni, I was studying engineering and physics and I was like, I'm probably going to be an engineer. Like I'll, you know, go get some kind of mechanical engineering job doing something or other. And I was just kind of doing that. And then I finished undergrad and I had the option of going for like masters of engineering or going into like physics research. And I was just like, the physics research is just way more interesting. Yeah. Um, it was always just interesting to me, I guess I should say a lot more interesting to me than the, than the mechanical engineering I was doing was. So I just kind of told myself, oh, I'll go do honors in physics and stick with the physics path for a while. But then I'll probably go back and do the masters in engineering. And then I started like physics honors and just never looked back. Like, wow. Yeah. Do you remember what it was about physics, like the moment where you're like, oh, okay, no, I'm stuck here. I really enjoy this. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there'd be a few things. I mean, I could trace it back like a a little bit. Like when I was in high school, I definitely had like a great physics teacher. She was like a PhD. She'd done like a little bit of um, work in physics research and then she'd moved into teaching and like she was fantastic. And so that was like a big motivator for me studying it at university for sure. Um, A little bit earlier than that, we'd had this really cool outreach program from um, the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. They're a radio astronomy group in Perth uh, or based in Perth, but they're kind of like an international thing. Um, They came in and did some like after school stuff at my school and like that kind of like got me quite interested in like the astrophysics side of things but then like what made me want to stay in it I think it was this research internship that I did in between right after like finishing undergrad so like I just finished my bachelor's with like uh, majors in engineering and also physics and I was like off doing this summer research internship in China working in this research facility and I was just like that was so cool that I was like I want to go back and do more of this that's really really cool what was it like studying in China um different yeah yeah interesting yeah I mean I would say like they they definitely like I will say like we got being like from Australia we got some special treatment I expect like we were like undergraduate students there for the summer we had like offices whereas there were a lot of like PhD students and stuff working there who were in like big group offices so we definitely got the like visitor (laughs) red carpet treatment uh, to a degree but no it was it was cool do you think there's value in studying science overseas Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, science is an international endeavor for sure. The laws of physics are the same here as they are in China. So it's. That um, That definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I think it's. I mean, if you want to work in science, you're going to have a hard time doing it if you are insular. Like, the scientific community is is relatively connected throughout. Yeah, all the And sometimes you have to share information. Yeah, definitely. With stuff that you do, especially because it is so niche, I guess, it probably helps to collaborate with other people. In some senses, it's niche. In some senses, it's the biggest problem facing the world of physics today. (laughs) This is very true. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no, totally. I mean, we do have 
a lot of good collaborations. It's definitely groups from all over the world who are interested in dark matter, pursuing different theories and stuff. The thing with physics, when I picture physics, I think about what I did in high school. So I think about equations, I think about gravity, and I think about it kind of explaining how the world works and the stuff that you can't see. If, say, you go to uni and you do physics, for example, Uh what are the kinds of different things that you can branch out into after that? Right. Okay. Well, with a physics undergrad, the way the university structure, at least in this country, seems to work at the moment, you could pretty much do whatever, Um, you know, and you're going to have, like high-value critical thinking skills and analytical skills. I know, I remember relatively clearly after finishing honours, myself and the rest of my physics honours cohort, like, you start getting emails from, like, finance company recruiters being like, hey, are you interested in our grad program? Because the economics grads don't know enough maths to do the modelling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's relatively common. Like, there's a lot of people who finish either undergraduate or even graduate degrees in physics and go work in like analyst jobs either in finance or some other sector because the again the analytical thinking skills the mathematical modeling skills the data analysis skills that you have to learn uh to do physics are are sort of highly sought after in a lot of areas um people become people go work in defense that's another relatively common one in different ways People will go work in like actual like um, cybersecurity defense type stuff like signals analysis, but people also go work in defense consultancy. So, you know, here's an intelligence report about what we know about the state of um, the nuclear program in Iran. Tell me about it kind of thing. Right. That's some of the pathways people go down. You could also go into research. You could also take that physics undergrad and go do a grad study in like any other field. Right. But that's that's kind of true of any undergrad these days. That's very true. You can seem to it seems like people are able to broaden into just about anything. But for you, you decided to keep going with physics. You did honours. Mm-hmm. So what is your current project if you had to sum it up in like... A few sentences? Yeah. So uh, my current work is the same work I was doing during my PhD, which is this thing called organ, which stands for, and I'll give you this, and then I promise I'll tell you what it means, (laughs) it's the Oscillating Resonant Group Axion Experiment. So the the organ experiment is what we call it. It's a horrible backronym, which is extremely common in physics, especially particle physics. People love to give things an acronym first and then come up with what it means later. (laughs) There was a bit of a sort of race to the bottom with this in uh, specifically the, the dark matter community I work in recently, where you had acronyms coming out like Mad Max and Abracadabra. Like the guys who came with Abracadabra, like they were very much like, here's an acronym, now let's massage words to fit it (laughs) completely. But anyway, um, Axion Dark Matter. So uh, we talked before about how we know about dark matter from gravitational observations a little bit and how we have different theories about what it might be. One of the most popular theories, and if you ask me, the best one, Mm -hmm. is that it's made up of these particles called axions, which are theoretical particles that are motivated by like a completely different area of physics. And if axions exist, and axions are the dark matter, and they're passing through this room in our bodies right now, the theory tells us that they should have uh, certain very weak interactions with other kinds of stuff that we can see and can interact with. Notably, these particles called photons, which are actually the particles of light. So the light in the room that you're in right now, or if you're outside, the light from the sun, what that light actually is on a very, very small scale is many, 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 many photons, these little particles of light. So the theory tells us that axions should interact with photons. The interaction occurs when like, an axion interacts with a magnetic field 
it will turn into a photon or some some small amount of axions inside a magnetic field will turn into a photon. So uh, what we do is we get a big strong magnet, we turn it on in our lab, we assume there's a flux of axions moving through that magnet and some small percentage of them are going to convert into photons inside the magnet. And the thing that's nice about that is we as a species are really, really good at detecting photons. In fact, it's the thing we've gotten like by far best at uh, as far as physics is concerned. And so we can take something that we have no chance of detecting in the form of dark matter and convert it into something that we're great at detecting in the form of axions. Now, I'm being reductive. There are a lot of engineering challenges associated with this. Um, there are a lot of reasons that it's actually very hard to detect those photons, but that's the basic idea. So we build a detector for those photons that we, that those little flashes of light, if you like, that we expect to be generated when axion dark matter passes through the magnet. Gosh, that is one of the most complicated PhD topics I think I've ever heard. It's great. <laughs> uh, it's definitely uh, not as complex as some that I ran up against uh, traveling around at conferences and stuff. There are some people who work on some crazy stuff. But yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's interesting. I so here's it. a challenge for you. Mm-hmm. I know that you like science communication. That's something yeah. we're going to talk about a little bit later. Oh. How would you explain what you do to a kid who's maybe like, let's say they're about eight years old. Yeah. How would you explain what you do for work? How long have I got? Or... <laughs> I don't know. Let's say about a minute or so. How would you explain it? Okay. Uh, We are looking for stuff that we can't see, but we know is there. So we know from looking out in space that there's lots of invisible stuff passing through the Earth at all times, but we don't know what it is. We know there's a ton of it, and we think it's pretty important to figure out what it is. So because it's passing through the Earth, it's passing through a room where you could build like a detector or an experiment, and we basically do that. We build like a box to try and observe the stuff as it passes through so we can figure out what it is. That's great. I'm thinking about the fact that today you've come along, it's quite late in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you've been in the lab all day, you've been at work all day. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for a physicist like you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it looks really different from day to day, which is one of the things I love about this job. So sometimes you'll be very hands-on working on an experiment, like uh, putting, like in a very mechanical sense, like putting screws into things, like putting something together, taking something apart, uh, inserting new components that have been uh, manufactured in the workshop down the hall and stuff like that. That'll be like a pretty typical day. Sometimes it'll be maintenance on an experiment that's currently operating. So like there's a lot of stuff, once you've kind of bolted your experiment together and it's running, you have to do a lot of stuff to the outside parts of it to kind of keep it running. Sometimes you do a lot of that. Sometimes you'll be reading papers because there'll be like a new discovery in the field and you'll want to read up on it. Sometimes you'll be analyzing data that you took from other experiments. Sometimes you'll be kind of proposing new experiments, like sitting there and thinking and like sort of sketching out like how sensitive a given experiment you might propose might be and whether it's worth doing and stuff. Um, And sometimes you'll be doing like modeling, like computational modeling of experiments to see whether they're going to be any good. So lots of different stuff. Yeah, no kidding. Mm. At least that keeps your day a bit fresh. Yeah. Do you ever get intimidated by the size of the work, the fact that you could be doing these experiments and, you know, ticking off that checklist, finding Mm -hmm. out stuff about dark matter or finding out new things? Do you ever get intimidated by how long it could take you to find answers? So, yes, there is definitely like a a kind of... um, You need a certain mindset going into it, which is like... You, you know when you're going into something like this where you're probing around in the dark looking for an answer to like a huge question like this that you may literally never find it um, and you just kind of have to, to make your peace with that. In terms of like how people feel about that in general in the field, I will 
tell an anecdote of my experience working with some other people who I won't name who work in similar stuff on like a large scale experiment and there's kind of like two generations of researchers working on this experiment there's the older group who've been doing it for like you know a couple of decades and they're kind of like the senior professors at this point and then there's the younger group of people like early career researchers like me who work on it and when you talk to the like early career researchers there's this prevailing kind of perspective of like you see something like you know you get false positive detections all the time like you see something and the immediate assumption is that it's a false positive like everything you see you're just like (laughs) oh now we got to figure out where this is coming from so we can rule it out and move on whereas like when the senior professors are down in the lab and they see they're like oh, we could have done this could be it <laughs> like they get really excited anytime there's a thing and like of course like either way you go through the due diligence process of trying to determine whether it's a real signal or not but it's just like a different mindset upon seeing one which is is quite uh interesting intergenerational I imagine there are quite a lot. Like, uh, I can see how the desire to find out more could really propel you through a long career in physics. So Mm. I I imagine there's quite a big range of people who've been studying it for a really long time and fresh physicists coming straight out of uni. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, You've got to stay curious. There's more physics now than there's ever been in the past. I mean, like... 150 years ago like what you learned in high school physics if you did year 12 physics was kind of like all the physics anybody knew and like that's definitely no longer the case and getting a phd in physics at the moment doesn't mean you know everything about physics like there are like not even like close like there are entire fields of physics that people will have done phds in that i would know like literally nothing about because it's so broad now you you can't know everything and so you've got to stay curious like you finish a phd in a usually like very niche specialized area and then you kind of just start broadening out and if you want to have a long career you've got to kind of be like oh like where can i take these skills that i learned in this area and apply them to kind of tangential areas and start kind of broadening your knowledge this is a tricky question because I definitely can see the value in science, almost all science, because I love being curious and finding things out. But for the average person, why should and should people care about physics? Okay, so there's two kinds of answers to that question. Um, Firstly, are we talking about physics more broadly or are we talking specifically about dark matter? Let's go dark matter. Okay, well, yeah, two kinds of answers. One of them is a kind of more philosophical one, which is along the lines of it's within our fundamental human nature to explore. I mean, it's the only reason that the world is as connected as it is today, which, you know, depending on your perspective, may or may not be a good thing, but um, it's, you know, it's it's certainly a fundamental aspect of human nature to look at the unknown and try and figure out more. It's just like what we do. Um, and, you know, this is like, in some sense, it's like the biggest blank spot on the map, if you like, because like we've learned over the several hundred years, like a lot of detail about things that make up people and planets and stars, like the fundamental particles inside atoms, quarks and electrons, stuff like that. Like if you zoom in on your arm, you see cells, you zoom in on those cells you see molecules you zoom in on those molecules you see atoms and inside the atoms you've got like quarks and electrons and stuff making them up and like that's the same stuff that makes up like the planet and the sun and everything and we know a lot about that stuff but we also know now that that's like one sixth of the stuff so it's actually much less than that it's actually more like one twentieth of the stuff but that's a whole different thing i'll come back to that in a minute but (laughs) it's it's one sixth of all the matter the stuff that makes up like people and planets and stars so like in some sense it's just like how can we not need to know more about like what all this other stuff is Which leads me to the slightly more practical, tangible answer about why people should care, which is like when you look at every major achievement, technologically speaking, in human history, it comes from poking around in the dark 
pulling on the threads that we don't know where they're going and seeing what falls out. Like if we only ask questions we already know the answer to, we'll never discover anything. If we didn't look at like the big outstanding questions and go like, oh, what's that? We would never have discovered electricity. We would never have like computers. We would never have like radio wave communication or anything like that that powers like every aspect of our life today. We need to, to go poking around in the dark to learn anything new. And to me, when you consider what we've achieved as a species with a knowledge of just one-sixth of all the matter, the idea to me that we shouldn't even be bothered worrying about the remaining five-sixths is, like, patently absurd. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's just my perspective on the issue. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to go on? <laughs> oh, no, I like that a lot, actually. I like the idea that it's, if this is what we've achieved from knowing this much, imagine how mm. much more we could get. I think that kind of puts it in a perspective from maybe a subject people were at school studying and found it a bit scary and intimidating. Mm. I know I did to what it actually means in the real world, which is pretty cool. You are quite involved in science communication. I try. And you quite obviously enjoy talking about what you study and sharing that with other people. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah, I didn't (laughs) just come here to do you a favour. So I wanted to ask, how did you find yourself in the science communication space? Uh, oh, that's a great question. I I think probably, I mean, I kind of mentioned earlier, like in my younger life, I had a bit of an interest in like being an actor or a writer or something. So I've always had like a bit of an artistic interest, I suppose. And I just found that like the combination of those interests kind of put me in a unique spot to talk about the physics. I mean, I don't want to like paint with a broad brush here because I think like physicists in particular do get painted with a broad brush a lot of the time uh, in terms of their communication skills. And I know a lot who are great and like very like great to speak to and great to hear talk about their work. I mean, we know a lot of famous physicists, right? Like your Carl Sagan's, your Neil deGrasse Tyson's, Brian Cox, et cetera, and so forth. Um, But you'd be lying if you denied the fact that there is a communication barrier in physics as a field. And so being someone who like has a interest in doing that kind of thing, I feel like you almost have kind of a duty to do that kind of thing. And I feel like the public kind of has a right to to know and try and understand the work that's being done largely with their tax money, if they're interested in learning about that stuff, then yeah, I think it's great. I also think it's um extremely valuable. I mean, you obviously share this opinion. You've got to like get people interested in and inspired by the science it's important as a society that everyone kind of feels like it's a a good thing to be doing because otherwise like there won't be public support for it and then it won't happen do you remember what your first i guess steps in science communication were like the first things you kind of participated in yeah, that's a good question. I think um, probably like a three-minute thesis competition. Probably, yeah, sometime early in my PhD, like a yeah, um, so three-minute thesis. If you're not familiar, it's this international competition where uh, typically PhD students and sometimes other kind of graduate research students are given three minutes and one single slide to like present their entire thesis. And it's this like international phenomenon, blah, blah, blah. Lots of different groups around the world do their own version of it at different times. And yeah, I think probably participating in stuff like that yeah, at every opportunity that I could get. Is it scary talking about what you study in front of such a big audience? Because I know that you've also done TEDx in Perth. Yeah. I do do my research. Oh, I am a fantastic. journalist by trade. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it kind of scary? Uh, look, I mean... Yes and no. You get used to it. I did a lot of I did a lot of theatre in school and then also through university and like I've been on a couple of stages now. Like it is definitely like a a skill to learn like anything else, but like I don't get too much stage fright these days. There's definitely like a rush of adrenaline before you go on. Like absolutely, that's undeniable. But yeah, it's not it's not too bad. It's so interesting that you've got 
a theatre background as well because a lot of the science communicators, I know myself included, we've always enjoyed drama at school. Like it mm. seems to be a thing where people yeah. have done both science like and drama. Attention hogs. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> yeah, got to get on stage, got to get in front of a mic, yeah. I think as a kid you can participate in lots of different things and not make the connection that those could work together in a future career. Mm. So I never pictured working in enjoying theater and enjoying science and be able to connect the two mm-hmm. and do something like podcasting yeah or communicating science it's, totally it's one of those things where i don't know sometimes people feel bad that they don't work in what they originally studied mm-hmm. but i think that those skills can translate no matter what you end up working in absolutely I came across your name because you're doing a fringe show. Yes, that's in right. Perth, which unfortunately, because of the nature of the podcast, it's, over. <laughs> it's well and truly over. <laughs> but tell me a bit more about how you turned science communication into a fringe show. Uh, yeah, great. So uh, people who are listening to this right now will be familiar with the concept of a podcast. Yes. Um, Otherwise I, your mind is blown at yeah, this point. Yeah, you're like, what am I hearing? <laughs> <laughs> this what? isn't music. Yeah, this isn't even the radio. Uh, yeah, no. So I, I make a couple of podcasts uh, and... I'd kind of always been interested in making like a science communication podcast, a science podcast. And then I was at this um, like science communication competition, this thing called FameLab. It's quite similar to Three Minute Thesis. If you ask them, they actually came first and Three Minute Thesis ripped off their uh, concept. Ooh, but anyway, drama. Yeah, a bit of drama. Anyway, so I was at the, uh, the national final for that and I met this other researcher from Queensland. She's actually from the States, but she was uh, doing a PhD in Queensland at the time in marine biology. And I thought that her presentation was really great and I was looking to like start up this science podcast and I like just kind of grabbed her and was like hey do you want to do this thing with me and she was really keen and so we started kicking around like conceptually what it would be at the same time I was kind of like doing fringe shows and other stuff with my like more theatery friends on the other kind of side of my life and then I was like hey we haven't actually launched this podcast yet what if we did it live at fringe and Taryn the other scientist was really into it and so we were like yeah great and we just put it together and it's just like a live podcast we sit there and we do basically what we're doing now uh, perhaps in a slightly more performative way. I don't know. I guess like it really is people talking, but the nature of like having a live audience there makes you kind of uh, I don't know come come alive a little bit more maybe. Uh, but yeah, no, we, we talk about we we say uh, politics, history, and culture through the lens of science, right? Rather than doing just like a science lecture. Well, that's the thing, right? You can apply science to pretty much anything. I personally love pop culture, super mm. into things like reality TV and music and all sorts of things. And you kind of can start dissecting them in a scientific way if you try hard enough. Yeah. I mean, especially like a lot of the episodes of um, The Uncertainty Principle, which is the name of that show, uh, I will typically start with like um, like a history thing almost. Like I'll always just be like, I feel like that's like a really interesting way to draw people in, like the history of this particular scientific field. Where did it come from? How did we learn? about for instance the existence of dark matter how did we get to where we are today then you're not really talking about like the hard science of it but you're still talking about the science and like you can do the same thing with politics a lot of the time like what's going on with say nuclear energy right now politically and like what are the laws on it etc and so forth i find that's a great way to kind of communicate the science in a way that people who don't have a hard science background can grab onto yeah for sure and some of the best scientific conversations i've ever had are with people who haven't studied it they're just interested Mm. i think that's the power of you know opening conversations i want to take a complete sidestep for a minute you obviously do your study and your work in wa Mm -hmm. do you think it's a good place to work in science yes i do i think it depends like what kind of science you want to work in i won't pretend to speak 
for all fields yeah. because I don't really know what the state of West Australian science is like in, let's say, chemistry or biology or whatever. But uh, at least in physics at the moment, we're doing pretty well. I mean, we've got, I mentioned before, ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, who are very heavily involved in the square kilometre array that's currently under construction, which is the biggest telescope ever constructed by human beings, which is being, Amazing. you know, produced mostly in West Australia and a little bit of in, in South Africa as well. So, like, if you're interested in the astro side of things, it's absolutely going to be the place to be in sort of the next couple of generations. Um, at the same time, on the, like, lab physics front, uh, we are, like, at least at the University of Western Australia, where I work, we have um, nodes of these things called ARC Centres of Excellence, which are, like, the sort of top-level government research funding uh, for, like, various different things related to physics. There's the one that I primarily work for, which is called EQUIS, ARC Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, and this brand new one that just started this year, which is called the ARC Centre of Excellence for Dark Matter Particle Physics, which is kind of what I'm transitioning into working in. And, um, like, yeah, I mean, like, we've got quite a good research community here working on those topics and like we're bizarrely well funded for a physics lab in Australia I must say uh, and around the world so yeah I think it's great. What are some of the misconceptions about physicists? Okay great I think the first one is that physicists like sit in front of computers all day or like sit around like typing or scribbling all day there is sometimes bits of that in the job, but again, as we've already discussed, one of the things I love about it is how variable it is and how much it gets you out and around, get to travel a lot. Yeah, so that's that's certainly one of them. Another misconception, I would say, is that physicists are like the characters that you see on the Big Bang Theory. Again, like in every uh, profession, you've got a percentage of those people. They do exist, no question about that. But yeah, I mean, if you go hang out in a physics department, you'll meet all, all kinds of people. And I guess going on from that, what do you wish people just knew? about either what you study or about physics and your work in general, either way. We aren't just studying like niche things that are of interest to us for the sake of our own interest. A lot of the time it kind of looks that way and that is a lot of like the, the mechanical day-to-day of how what you choose to study. But the reason it's interesting to us is because it's like a big unknown question. And we know we can see it throughout history. Whenever we start unraveling these big unknown questions, that's when we have massive technological leaps forward. Like we aren't just studying them for interest. They are interesting for sure, but we're also studying them because like it will change our understanding of the universe. Okay, so I asked some of uh, our coworkers at Particle. Great. What kind of questions they would like to ask a physicist? Fantastic. So feel free to say that you can't answer these. No, but also, I'll do my best. Uh, what is a wormhole? Okay, uh, wormhole is a thing that comes from Einstein's theory of general relativity. So the theory of general relativity is the theory of gravity that was proposed by Einstein something like a hundred years ago. With the apple falling from the tree kind no, of deal? No, that was Isaac Newton. Oh my goodness. That was, yeah, hundreds of years earlier. Um, general relativity is the theory that replaced Isaac Newton's theory of gravity. Okay. So like... General relativity is this analogy that you may have heard is the idea that like all of space and time is like a rubber sheet and anything that has any mass creates like dents in that sheet. And so you can like distort the fabric of space and time with things that are heavy. And so this is where um, stuff like black holes can be predicted, like things that are like so dense that you imagine them creating like this huge well in that rubber yes. sheet that nothing can escape from. Uh, also, if you've seen that movie Interstellar, the other consequence of that like a, a space of such high gravity is that it also distorts the passage of time so like when you're in a very high gravitational well like time flows you know faster or slower relative to somebody who's not 
so that's the theory of general relativity it's this theory that like all of space and time is this interconnected fabric that's distorted by the distribution of mass and energy and all observations of gravity like the apple falling uh down towards the earth are all just the consequence of the fact that everything lives on that rubber sheet and the mass distorts the sheet and so things like roll you know down the down the sheet yeah so like the earth if you like if you like uh, to think about the apple, the earth is like a you know small pebble on the rubber sheet creating a little bit of a dent and the apple like sits on the sheet and then because there's a dent it like rolls down the sheet towards the, the earth and like heavier things create bigger wells and blah 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 blah. The idea of a wormhole is to take that idea a little bit further and to say like well you've got your rubber sheet here, you can make like a big dent what if you could like make a tunnel from one point on the rubber oh. sheet to another point on the rubber sheet so it's now you imagine you've got like like a sheet of paper um or like again well let's just stick with the rubber sheet and that is all of space and time and like obviously like a rubber sheet is like two-dimensional you can only go left and right right but imagine it in in, in three spatial dimensions and one time dimension so it's four-dimensional <laughs> four-dimensional rubber sheet right and like it, it can be bent around and like you know crumpled up into a ball or whatever but like from your perspective on the sheet you don't know that that's happening because you live like in the dimensions of the sheet does that make sense i think so it's like let's, let's take it back to two dimensions right like if you live on a two-dimensional piece of paper you can't tell if that piece of paper is bent in yes. half or not right you just live on the paper and to you it's all the same but if you were on that sheet of paper or that rubber sheet and it was bent over itself and somebody could like punch through it then you could get directly from this side of the piece of paper to that side without going up all the way around the fold you yes. can just go straight through that's essentially a wormhole ah, and mm. are they something we think exist could exist okay depending on who you ask never Ooh. been observed so far oh that's kind of exciting mm. another one we had was what would you put in a black hole if you could um nothing <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't condemn anyone to that fate or anything um what would you put in a black hole if you could oh boy that's an interesting one maybe some kind of yeah some kind of thing that could transmit the information of what's going on inside out because we don't know that's a but like like you know the 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 nature of the black hole is that you can't like you can't transmit anything out of a black hole because it's so dense that not even light can escape the gravitational well it creates in the sheet and if you can't send light out you can't send any data or anything i like like, the idea that you you want to send something into set to to see what's going on in there because we can't observe it yep fair play and the last one we had was What's your favorite equation? Oh, boy. That's a great, (laughs) great question. I feel like that's one of those things where it's like um, there's this really great joke you ask like a like a math enthusiast how many decimals of pi do you know and they're like 2307 and then you ask like a mathematician like what's pi and they're like uh about three (laughs) i don't know i don't really play favorites with my equations um i i would say uh i really like just because of there's like a really nice elegant symmetry to them uh maxwell's equations which are the equations that govern the motion of light so it's really four equations also, there's a way you can represent them so it's just one equation. So I'm not really cheating. I like that. Okay. And that's something we can see, something yeah. that we can relate to. Yeah. And to finish up, this is something I've been looking forward to asking the whole time pretty much you've been talking. Go on. Um, I have been listening, but also I've been yeah. looking forward to this. Oh, well, I'm on tenderhooks. <laughs> what is your favourite physics fun fact? Oh, boy. Something people could take to a dinner party or maybe next time I'm in the lunchroom and I'm lost for something to say yeah. that I can just say and people are like, wow, you're so smart, Rose. It's such a good fun fact. Okay, here's a, here's a bit of a weird one. There is a certain interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which a lot of like really smart people actually believe is true. Uh, it's not like 
some like crazy fringe idea, which is that like every time a very small event happens, like an electron flips around on an atom or something, something in the, the realm of quantum mechanics, something very small, the universe itself actually splits into two parts, one where it went one way and one where it went the other. And we are only like consciously existing in the All one of- that we're currently in, wow. but like some version of you is existing in another one. Yeah. The many, Google the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. A lot of people believe that's a real thing. I will hedge that a little bit by saying that like some people consider those other universes like just mathematical universes that aren't like real physical ones, but some people also view them as like tangibly real universes. Wow. So yeah. I feel like I've seen that a bit in pop culture and TV yeah, and stuff. That's one that gets exploded a lot. Um, but you know, fair enough. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm probably going to be thinking about that for the rest of the <laughs> afternoon. Well, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Particle Podcast. Check out more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was recorded in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia and we are proudly powered by SciTech.